I want to start our time looking at Scripture with something participatory. So I'm going to ask us to read our text from Isaiah 40 out loud together. I'm going to be reading parts as the leader, and then there will be people parts where you will join your voices with me. And and any kids in the room, I'm going to need you to show your parents what it means to be loud. Let's do this together. We're going to read God's Word from Isaiah 40. It starts this way. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. And I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Is God's word to us this morning from the prophet Isaiah. A couple of weeks ago, I had decided that I had this phone for 18 months and I have dropped it many times and it had many little cracks and dings on it and I thought, I'm going to take it to the Sprint store and I'm going to have them fix it. So I made an appointment. The day came. I drove over there. I was so excited. I mean, honestly, I was probably a little too excited. Like, my phone is finally going to be fixed. No more scratches. It'll be like a brand new phone. It was so It was so joyful. So I get to the Sprint store, I drop my phone off, and I leave. I go back to the office, and I'm sitting there, and I don't know what to do with myself. Partly because I'm so excited, but partly because I don't have my phone. So so a couple hours later, I get in my car with great anticipation, and I drive over to the Sprint store, and I walk in. It's about 5 o'clock. I walk in. And it's packed. And I just think, oh, this is going to take forever. So I walk in and I make eye contact with the tech who was fixing my phone. And he saw me and he got up from behind the counter and he came to meet me with my phone. And he said, this place is so busy. It'll take forever to check out. Just take it and go. And I thought like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, it's a good day. It's a great day. So I have this phone. It looks brand new. It looks really shiny, perfect, uncracked screen. I sit down in my car. I turn it on, searching for signal, searching for signal, searching for signal, searching for signal. And I think, okay, well, maybe it just takes a little while after they repair a phone. So I I put it down. I drive home. And then I notice the phone has 6% battery. 
And I have an event to go to a few hours later that evening, and so I go and I plug it in, and I realize it's not charging. And I thought, that's weird. It charged before I took it in to get fixed. So go find another charger in the house. I plug it in, still not charging. And I realize I have a phone that's about to die, and it's not getting cell service anyways. I have to go back to this rent store. It was the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. So if I don't go tonight, tomorrow I'm not getting my phone fixed. On Black Friday, I'm probably not going in to get my phone fixed. So let me just say, I was not nearly as joyful driving back to the Sprint store that evening <laughs> as I had been earlier that day. <laughs> I put so much pressure on this little man-made device to bring like, meaning and joy into my life. Like, what do you have in your life? What do you put so much pressure on? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it a friend group? Is it a grade? A device? What are you asking to provide deep meaning and satisfaction and joy in your life? And what you often find is, you often find it quickly fails you. It doesn't work out. It doesn't deliver on the promises. Many of us, if we're honest, we regularly settle for cheap substitutes for joy in our lives that don't work out. And that is exactly why we need a season like Advent. Last week, we kicked off the Advent season. It's that four-week period before Christmas where we sit both with expectation but also with brokenness and longing, where we make space to understand why we need a Savior in the first place. In the New York Times this past week, one of their writers, Tish Warren, wrote about our collective culture, society's need for a time such as Advent. And here's what she said. Our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism. And we can turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. We need collective space. She's talking about Advent. We need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant, not as a saccharine or fake act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. What she's saying is that if we're going to discover a better way to live, a better way to be human, a way to flourish, then we have to acknowledge and sit with all of the brokenness and the longings in our world. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to sit with and acknowledge all of the ways that we choose to settle for cheap substitutes for joy. As a, as a society, we use words like joy happiness pretty interchangeably. We don't necessarily, necessarily differentiate between those words, but when we talk about joy in a biblical sense, we're actually talking about something quite different than happiness, which is often just like a circumstantial thing. C.S. Lewis, that great Christian thinker and writer, said this about joy. He said, all joy reminds. It is never a possession 
always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. What he's saying is that joy is not something that you can own, that you can control, or that you can manipulate. In this season, we might say that joy is not something we can purchase or consume. We can't put it in a box under the tree. That joy is something different. It is not a circumstantial thing, but joy is about a deep sense that you can live with confidence and contentment in the present as a result of your beliefs about the past and the future, that your life is part of a bigger story in which you trust that all things will work out for your flourishing. And this is what our text in Isaiah 40 offers us. Now, if you notice, that text does not use the word joy, and yet it is a reason for joy. It sets the stage for how God will step into history and provide for lasting joy in all of our lives. So let's look at the text. Verse 1, Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Let's stop there. It's important to understand something about the text in Isaiah at this point. So Isaiah 40 starts a whole new section of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is broken into parts. The first 39 chapters are written to Jewish people living in Jewish land. They're living in Israel. And they are primarily a warning from the prophet Isaiah that says, if you keep disobeying and disregarding God, things will not turn out for your favor. Things will not turn out for your flourishing. You will suffer. So 39 chapters, that's what he says. And then there's like a pause, like an interlude, a space in between chapter 39 and chapter 40. And the Babylonians come across that part of the known world, they conquer the Israelites, and then they carry them back across the Arabian Peninsula into exile. And so chapter 40 is not written to God's people in God's land, but written to Jewish people living in Babylon. They are defeated people, hopeless people, living in exile. So this text speaks to people who feel very frustrated about the future. They see no way out of their predicament, that they're suffering under exile because of their failure and their shame. And that's who God is speaking to when he says, take comfort. Though you are in exile, you are forgiven. God has forgiven you. And forgiveness is a great reason for joy. Let me show you how this works. One of our family's favorite shows is The Voice. So I don't know if you ever watched The Voice or a show like it, but The Voice is fascinating because they start the show by these four judges facing away. They don't see who's singing. The singer comes out. They sing whatever song they've chosen. And if they're good, the judges choose to turn around to try to claim them for their team. So it's all based on their voice. And True confession, uh, I only watch the blind auditions. I never know who wins the voice, but I love the blind auditions. It is fascinating, captivating television. And if I'm honest, I'm sometimes watching and, and my eyes start to get wet. 
And I can't, I can't figure out why. It's just, it's like this thing that happens. Because it's so moving. And, and inevitably, there's somebody that comes on the show who they, they sing. Like, I think they sound amazing, but the judges don't turn around. I listen and I just think, wow, that's so good. And the judges don't turn. And then when the judges turn, they say something to the effect of, your voice was pretty good. You sounded great, but it's just something was off. The song was wrong, whatever. Come back next year. I just think, come back, come back next year? 12 months from now? You want me to wait that long? But inevitably, somebody does. Every season, somebody comes back. And they, they, they sing and they, they nail it. And the judges turn. And they're like, oh, you're so amazing. And they're like, yeah, remember me? <laughs> right? And here's the thing. In the moment, what the judges are saying to them is, your circumstances don't define you. That you may not be where you want to be right now, but that doesn't limit what's possible. The judges name something about them. They declare, no, you have a good voice. Just work on this and come back. And even if it doesn't change the disappointment that they're feeling in that moment, it contains a promise about who they are that it seems to give them hope. It seems to give them joy to help them keep going. God's forgiveness is a reason for joy. Isaiah is telling the people, you may not be where you want to be, but your circumstances don't define you. He declares something to be true about them, that they have been forgiven. They've been given something that they could have never hoped for, they could have never earned on their own, and because that now, that now defines them, a deeper truth about them, they've been forgiven. It is a reason for joy. And then Isaiah goes on to say in verse 3, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves. Smooth out the rough places. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. So this imagery, these words actually show up several times in the Bible. They show up several times in Scripture. And it's not because God does not love a good mountain view. It's not because God's against beautiful topography. If you imagine somebody traveling in an ancient world, every bump, every hill, every mountain, every valley was an obstacle. So we take road trips and we don't think anything about this. Kids in the room, raise your hand if you took a road trip for Thanksgiving. Anybody? Nobody take a road trip? Kids? Adults? Anybody adults take a road trip? There is kids over here. Where'd you go? Kansas. Did you drive or fly? You, dr you drove? Okay. So we drive, hopefully the speed limit, around mountains and curved roads. We fly over mountains and valleys and land where we want to go. We don't think much about the obstacles to our trips. We don't think much about the obstacles to our adventures. But again, if you lived in the ancient world and you had to walk a long journey, every curve in the road was a longer path. Every hill you had to go over, every dip in the road caused you to walk even further. It was exhausting. And so Isaiah is speaking to people who are in exile. 
and who have tried to achieve the promises of God by human strength. And they end up settling for cheap substitutes. They end up settling for a happiness that they can create and manipulate and achieve and earn and build. And these things end up becoming obstacles to the joy that God has for them. And it's that time of year for us where we try to achieve the promises of God, joy and peace and hope and love by human effort, by purchasing and accumulating and consuming. And these things often become obstacles to experiencing the joy that God actually has for us. In this really poetic way, what Isaiah is saying is get rid of the obstacles. That look at all the ways that you're settling for cheap substitutes and to stop turning to the obstacles, to stop turning to the alternatives. He's saying that God is coming and God wants to bring you joy. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And if he lived in Minnesota... He might say, the grass gets buried beneath the snow and the flowers are gone for so long we forget what they look like, but the word of our God stands forever. See, the joy that God wants to bring in your life is not a temporary joy. It's not based on you. It's not based on anything you can produce or achieve or consume. The joy that God desires to bring you is a joy that's rooted in a God who never fails. And that is good news because when everything else fails us, the promise is that God remains the same. See, the good news is that Jesus steps into all of our broken substitutes for joy and he gives us the real thing. Last week in Carrie Gleason's sermon, she quoted from a Tim Keller book a couple of times called Hidden Christmas. It's an amazing and wonderful short book on, uh, on, on what we're talking about this Advent season. I would encourage you to grab it. But in Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller says, Christmas is not simply about a birth. It's not simply about a birth, but about a coming. About a coming. Isaiah tells us, he sets the stage for the truth that God looks at the world and he doesn't go, what a mess. You guys really stepped in it this time but that he looks at all of our brokenness and our longings and he hears us and he knows us and his heart breaks and he steps towards us that God doesn't just watch, God comes and God gets involved. One of the early Christians in the book of Hebrews 12 wrote, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That is a joy that is rooted in something deeper than just circumstantial happiness, than just cheap substitutes. See, Jesus is the reason for our joy because he is the one who makes our forgiveness tangible and real. He is the one who removes the obstacles, and he is the one who stands firm forever, even when everything else fails us. When I was a small child, 
my grandparents every year around Thanksgiving gave us a catalog. It was a Sears toy catalog. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And they would give us one, and my brother and I and our cousins would all take turns circling all, it had like all the toys you could ever imagine. And we would circle all the toys we wanted and give it back to them. And inevitably, something from our parents showed up off of that list and something from our grandparents. But what we really hoped for was that they would share that list with Santa Claus. And so I remember being seven years old and woke up Christmas morning, rushed into the living room, looked under the tree, and I saw the pile of gifts, and I thought, eh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was, they were fine gifts, but they weren't the gifts from my list. And, and I had been taught well enough by my parents to not show disappointment in those things, but inside I was just thinking, that's not, those aren't my gifts. And our cousins lived across the street, and so like you do, you run across the street and you compare, you compare loot with your cousins and see what you got. And I walked into my cousin's house and there on their floor were, were a lot of the gifts that I had circled in my, in my catalog. And I, in my seven-year-old head thought, Santa got our houses mixed up. <laughs> and I ran back home and with all like, honesty and earnesty, told my parents, Mom and Dad, I, I think Santa Claus mixed up our presents. And in that moment, I thought my parents were upset because Santa Claus had mixed up the presents. Um, <laughs> you know what I, what I realized is, is it possible that I was trying to find joy in cheap, insufficient, man-made things when I should have been joyful that I had been provided for so much in my life, even when I was clearly a spoiled little brat that didn't deserve it? Is it possible that we try to find joy in cheap, insufficient, man-made substitutes when instead we should be joyful that we have a loving present, generous God who has gone out of his way to provide for us so much when we so clearly don't deserve it. You have a good God who loves you. You have a God who has provided so much for you by way of his son, Jesus. Do not settle for anything less than the true joy that Jesus can bring. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we thank you for all the ways that you love us. God, you have been good for us, good to us, good for us, and your love never fails. Your provisions never fail. Help us to find joy in the fact that our lives are situated with you, that our lives are situated with a God who forgives us when we are broken and needy, who offers us full and possible and available joy through Jesus, who does not fail us, but who stands firm forever. And as we move towards the table, help us to taste and see that your joy is good and that it's real. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Amen.